Hey, welcome to Vine Church Fort Myers podcast. We are glad that you took time to listen. We pray that the message of grace empowers you today. Thank you very much, Pastor Rafa. An honor for me to be invited again to speak to you. And uh, it's a privilege. I wear this cap this morning for a couple of reasons. First of all, you all probably know that Nike Corporation is based in Portland, Oregon. And that's where we've lived for 27 years. But we've moved to Florida. We just finished a cross-country trip, and uh, we've got a lot of our stuff, more of it's coming, and we're, we're going to live here for uh, some other reasons, which I might mention a little bit later on. But uh, for the past 25 years, the Lord has uh, called me to a, a, a variety of ministries that have taken me all over the world, many, many countries, from uh, South Africa to South Korea and Asia and Africa, lots of places. It's interesting, you've probably noticed this too, but everywhere I've gone, there have been Nike products. Nike hats, Nike shirts, Nike sweatshirts, all kinds of Nike stuff everywhere in the world, almost everywhere. Do you know what the word Nike means? It's actually a Greek word, N-I-K-E, Nike, and it means overcome, conquer. So when Pastor Hoffa spoke two weeks ago on, the, on the, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, seven churches, each one, the Lord says, he who overcomes, I will bless. It's about conquering. But what I'm really excited about is the real conqueror the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the victor. And one day, everything will be subject to him, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the conqueror. And one day, can you envision this? One day, Jesus Christ will be as well known all over the world as Nike is right now. Won't that be a great day? Amen. So today, we're going to talk about conquering the family. How do we conquer the family? Thank you. No, I'm going to keep it. Um, I trust him, but I would like you to meet my family. And um, uh, some of them are here. A good number of them are here first. First, I'd like to ask my wife to come. This is, this is Kate. And tomorrow, we celebrate an anniversary. 52 years. 52 years. And we've already decided we're going to go for another. I have um, uh, one son here and his wife, Mariana, Tom and Mariana, if you would come up. I have one son-in-law, Peter Rendell, if you would come up, Peter. I have seven grandchildren here today. And if they would all come up. Come on, boys. 
And uh, this is Emily, and you know Emily, and you know these boys. They're my family, and I take so much delight in my family, as do you, in your family. So, guys, love you. You can be seated. In the scriptures, we have multiple metaphors, pick word pictures, analogies that help us understand various things. To help us understand, for example, our relationship with God, there are metaphors in the Bible. Uh, one of them, and one of my favorites, is that of the good shepherd and the sheep. And it doesn't mean that we're just dumb sheep. It means that it's a picture of how God cares for us, how he tends us, how he pays attention to us and protects us. And uh, in all these years that I've been a Christian and, and followed the Good Shepherd, it's amazing how he cares for us. Uh, Jesus said, I no longer call you slaves. You are my friends. Another beautiful picture of our relationship with God. We're his friends. I can say, on the basis of scripture, Jesus is my friend. And he would say, John, he's my friend. But perhaps the metaphor that is the, the, maybe the best, the one that I love the most, is the picture of marriage. The Bible presents our relationship with God as the relationship of a bridegroom and his bride. Now, you've seen people who are engaged and just about to get married. It's crazy, isn't it, the way they behave? I mean, they're totally absorbed with each other. They just love being together. They just stare at each other. And they can't wait to get on with life together. Well, that's how God is with us. He loves us intensely. He appreciates us as we are. And he wants to see what lies ahead and do it together. I can remember the moment. I could tell you where it was. I was on an airplane flying to, from home in Chicago down to North Carolina when I realized I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. No matter what I did for a vocation, where we lived, what happened, I didn't matter. I just wanted to spend my life with her. And we've had 52 wonderful years. I have a, a friend who says that he's been happily married for 25 years. But he says, that's not bad for 35 years of marriage. We've had 52 years. However, you all know, whether you're married or whether you just observed your own family there are some challenges that face a marriage. Serious challenges. And what God wants us to do is to overcome those. It says in Romans chapter 8 at verse 37 that in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Christ. Through Christ. So let's talk about 
marriage. Uh, you might want to look at your Bible in uh, Genesis chapter 3, for example. You only have to turn past two chapters in the Bible to find a, the first crisis in a marriage. It's Adam and Eve. If anybody had it made, it was Adam and Eve. They're in a beautiful garden. They've been made by God, and they have a relationship with him. He walks in the garden and talks to them. But in Genesis chapter 3, the devil comes. And uh, the serpent says, uh, God knows that uh, in the day that you eat from this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll become like God. And for some reason, that was very attractive to Eve. And she talks to Adam, and they eat together, and the world falls because of their sin. We're only th three chapters into the Bible, and sin occurs, and it occurs in the context of a marriage. And it's brought about by Satan. Now, it's too bad that they didn't conquer that. When Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, uh, he says to the devil, it is written, quotes the scripture, three times, it is written, it is written, be gone, Satan. That's how to conquer. Adam and Eve, Eve and Adam, could have conquered right then if they had simply repeated what God had said. Because they were already made in his image, weren't they? Genesis 1 and 2. She could have said, Satan, be gone. I am in the image of God already. It's one of the ways to conquer in a marriage, is to be able to recite, to apply the word of God precisely we have to know what it is that's why the vine church is so committed to life groups to discipleship to the teaching of the bible on sundays so that you know the word of god and you can apply it when you're tempted by the devil what be tempted by the devil oh let's look together at first peter chapter five. First peter chapter five you guys say, well adam and Eve, of course, they're prime targets. And no wonder the devil came after them. Look what Peter says to the church. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Someone. Doesn't matter. Doesn't have to be a leader. Although the leaders are often the victims, and the targets of satanic attacks, seeking someone. So here's the lion. He's hungry. He gets up from his sleep, and he's hungry, and there's a whole herd of zebras. And, and uh, does he say, oh, that one's too skinny? Um, maybe, oh, that one, there's a fat one over there. I'll go for that one. No, no. He just takes a zebra, and he'll take you. He's looking for someone. And if he can destroy a marriage, he succeeds because a marriage is meant to be a picture of our relationship with God. 
God loves us with that much intensity. So Jesus is a beautiful example. It is written, it is written, Satan, be gone. So marriage is a, is, is a wonderful thing, and I've enjoyed it greatly. But there are always challenges. And I, I have to tell you that uh, I'm not the perfect father, and uh, we haven't had the perfect marriage, but I'm willing to, to speak at Hafa's request because of these years of experience and because of what the scripture says. So, yes, we've seen satanic work in our family. And it's horrible. It is destructive. It's exactly what Jesus said. The adversary comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He does. And we've seen that in marriage in our family. And you want to be alert, be sober, be watching for this. Now, the beautiful thing about a marriage, of course, is, is our love. There's no love like it. We love our spouses even more than our parents did, even more than we will love our children. There's a unique, intense, complete love between husband and wife. And there are still challenges. Look at the church in Revelation chapter 2. This is the church at Ephesus, and uh, Pastor Hoffa read this to us two weeks ago. But uh, Jesus talks about the church, and he says, you're a great church. You're doing all these things just perfectly. I, I love that, except I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. Here's the bride and the bridegroom, and the church has lost its love. I think we probably all are aware of churches across the United States and elsewhere probably that are very active, and they have this ministry and that ministry, and they're doing these things. They've got these buildings and all these programs, but you wonder, where is the love for Jesus? Well, I see that love here in the vine. I see that. But what happens if love begins to diminish, begins to fade away, and it's not what it was once? How do you, how do you conquer that challenge? Well, the Holy Spirit is our answer. In Galatians chapter 5, there, we're exhorted, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. So we're not just ordinary people. This isn't just a natural human love. This is a love that comes from God, just the way his love for us is not natural either. It's a supernatural love. And if you want to conquer this challenge, if you really want to have the, the cap on, we need to be filled with the Spirit of God. All right? Wonderful challenges. We have a, a real threat because in marriage, particularly Christian marriages, there's the, the risk that the rest of the family doesn't buy into that. And in uh, Matthew chapter 10, for example, Jesus is warning his followers that it's not going to be well within your family. 
I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Later in the chapter, brothers are even going to give themselves up to murder right within the family. And what we need in the, in the marriage is a strong presence of the Holy Spirit binding us together in love and a willingness to testify right, to those who stand outside. I want, to, I want to be very real with you. I mentioned the satanic influence we've seen. I've seen this happen in my family as well. Family members who don't want anything to do with my faith. Um, I have an uncle who doesn't even invite me to birthday parties anymore because he doesn't want any part of my Christianity, and it hurts. But that's what Jesus said is coming. That's the challenge, and you have to be able to overcome it. So let me talk about another metaphor. We have the metaphor of marriage and the bride and the bridegroom. And we also have a beautiful metaphor of father and sons, sons and daughters. Primary metaphor. And when Jesus, for example, when he taught his disciples how to pray, right? He didn't say, well, pray to the almighty king of kings, the, the, the Lord of lords. No, he said, how did he say? When you pray, pray this way. Our father. Our Father, Dad, Abba. And if you were reading the devotions this week, you came to Romans chapter 8, and there the Apostle Paul talks about adoption. We are adopted as sons and daughters. Well, my wife Kate was adopted. And she was adopted by a, a, a husband and wife, Phil and Emily Keenan, who became a second father and mother to me. And they loved her as much as any natural parent possibly could. Maybe more. And that's what God does with us. He adopts us. We're his children. And he cares for us intensely. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Uh, so if your thumb is still in the, in the Bible at Genesis chapter 3, go one more chapter. One more chapter. Now we're only four chapters into the Bible, and we come across the first murder. And probably beyond all expectations, this murder is between brothers. Cain, jealous, angry, rises up and takes his brother, Abel. Crazy. The epitome, probably, of sibling rivalry. But in the, in the family, among the children in our families, there is going to be sibling rivalry, is there not? And um, I've seen it, and our, our four children are, are nine years apart, and there has been rivalry, sibling rivalry. And I see it among the grandchildren. And fortunately, it hasn't gotten too severe, but it can be very painful. And you've probably experienced it. You may have experienced it in your own family yourself, or you may have seen it in the children. So, fathers, mothers, you have a big task. You have a lot of challenges. 
I want to speak particularly to the fathers. I found it a great privilege to be a father and a unique love, a unique understanding of how God has made us all. I have a friend, though, his name is Henry Deneen, and for some years, Henry was the chief of staff for the governor of South Carolina, and then he took the position as head of the prisons in the state of Arizona. So reported to the governor, responsible for all the prisons. Smart guy, goes to work, and after a while, he is struck by the fact that so many of the prisoners, male prisoners, are young, in their teens, early 20s. And what even surprised him more was that many of them had been convicted multiple times and were back in prison. In fact, the recidivism rate in the prisons of Arizona was over 80%. That is, more than 80% of these people had been in prison before and came back. And, and he decided he had to find out what was going on with these young people. So he, he made several trips to prisons, and he'd go in with church groups or volunteer groups or sports groups and just uh, be there. He wore jeans and a T-shirt, and, and uh, no one knew that he was in charge of prisons in the whole state. Lunchtime would come, and they'd sit down at a picnic bench, and he'd be sitting there eating with, uh, with these prisoners, and he'd begin to talk to them. You know, Tell me your story. Tell me, how'd you get here? Oh, tell me about your life. And they would tell him openly, unabashedly. Well, my father, my father was a drunk. My father insulted me. My father never, never gave me an opportunity. My father beat my wife, beat, his, beat my mother. Time and time again. It was the father that these men, young men, saw as a critical factor in their lives. So Henry decided that he, he would, what he would do is go to the National Guard in the state of Arizona, and he would ask for volunteers who would come into the prisons and act as fathers to some of these young men. And there were lots of volunteers. They came in. And three years later, only three years later, the recidivism rate in Arizona dropped to 17%. The father's role is super important. The father's role. If you're going to conquer all the challenge, the sibling rivalry, the culture of our society, which is becoming more and more anti-Christian, not just unchristian, anti-Christian, Fathers, you have a big challenge. If we look at the fourth command, or the, the fifth commandment, the Ten Commandments, the first one, the, the, the first four all reply, all apply to God and our relationship with God. The fifth commandment is the first one that applies to us, and look what it says. Honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. This is how we we'll conquer in the family. We'll bring our children to honor their father and their mother and the values from Christ that we bring into the family. Now, we can't mandate that. We can't, I mean, we, we can't make that happen, but that's the approach. 
and with the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, it begins to transform things. And the children will learn to honor their father and mother. So you see the love of the father for the family? It's so, it's so strong. The family is meant to be a mirror, a, a metaphor, a picture of our relationship with God and our Heavenly Father. It's a beautiful thing. My, uh, my recollection in uh, Bible College Seminary was of uh, learning about uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, the 19th century English preacher, very famous, and the uh, New Park Street Chapel is where he spoke and just filled it with people. And one day, he was uh, there in the, in the Sunday service, and an intern, like Pastor Hoffa has, an intern came up for the pastoral prayer. And this is a big opportunity for him, and so he begins praying, and he's got all these fancy names for God. Oh, eternal creator of mankind, Lord of Lord, King. He's going on and on, and Spurgeon gets up out of his chair, walks up to the pulpit, taps him on the shoulder, and says, son, call him father and ask him for something. <laughs> yeah, that's the family. He's our father, and we can ask him for all kinds of things. So uh, I'd like you to, to stand now. We're going to, we're going to just take a moment and pray, because I want you to think of a challenge that God has given you while, we, while I've been talking, or a challenge that you already knew you had, a challenge in your marriage, a challenge in your family, and you want to say to the Lord, Lord, I want to conquer. I will trust you to conquer. So if you just bow your heads and pray silently, ask the Lord what it is, what challenge it is that he wants you to overcome. <laughs>